Unless you eat out all the time or use a delivery service, sooner or later you wind up here. Online at the grocery store. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. Cashiers often greet us with a nod and a smile, but are they happy with their jobs? On this morning's show, a union rep will talk to us about the struggles of working in the grocery industry. We'll also hear from a native Californian who, after moving to Queens, found herself longing for the Golden State's grocery stores. If you've ever thought New Yorkers a bit gruff, you need only visit one of our local supermarkets to find out why. That and more on a grocery-themed cityscape on ninety point seven FM and WFUV.org. Earlier this week, I was joined in the studio by John Mallon. John's with the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. We talked about the struggles of working in New York City's food retail industry. That includes green grocers, bodegas, delis, gourmet grocers, and your traditional supermarket. John, why don't you put a face on this, if you will, for us? These folks who are every day at the cashier, you know, stocking the shelves, who are these people? These are New Yorkers, just like the rest of us. They live and work in the city. They are proud to serve New Yorkers. They enjoy their jobs. However, there is a dark side to this um, lighter side of the grocers in New York City. New York City is one of the wealthier cities in the country, and we do have our share of supermarkets, and we're willing to pay for better prices for better items. Workers want their share. They want more than minimum wage, which is unfortunately what many workers in the supermarket industry, certain sectors, face um, depending on the particular sector. What kinds of workers do you represent in terms of the positions they hold? We represent retail workers, part-time and full-time. These are workers who cut your meat, uh, slice your cold cuts, ring up your groceries, pack your shelves. These are workers in both small and large markets. We are the largest food union in, in New York State. How much of the food retail industry is unionized here in the city? The traditional supermarkets are heavily unionized. And when I say traditional supermarkets, we're talking about those that are between 7,000 to 15,000 square feet or higher. However, it may be surprising, there are fewer and fewer of those in New York City every year. They're being replaced by either large big box stores, which are coming in, or the smaller traditional bodegas that you would find in more of the outer boroughs, like the Bronx, for example. Let's talk about the numbers here in New York City, John, as far as the traditional supermarket versus these other stores that we talk about, the bodegas, the delis, the gourmet grocers. Yeah, it's interesting. Most people, when you mention to them where, where do they shop, they just say, oh, I go to the local supermarket. But we, we've run some, a study recently and came up with some interesting data. Citywide, all five boroughs, there are 11,550 stores where you can buy food. But of that, only about 550 fall into the traditional supermarket category. Um, and what's important about that is the traditional supermarket is a place that has a union contract, offers good middle-class jobs, offers a wide variety of healthy food. If you take, for example, a borough like the Bronx, something like 85% of the food stores in the Bronx fall into the small bodega category, which could become a problem for uh, lower-income families because they, there's not a wide selection there. And then you can get into health issues where you're buying food that could be perhaps outdated, or not the healthiest of foods. Do you get involved in that debate at all, the push to put supermarkets in underserved neighborhoods? We are. Um, we're working with the city council as well as some state legislators to help us for that purpose offer a greater variety, a greater uh, access for, for low-income families to reach that healthy food and also to help bring up the economy in those lower-income areas. But those numbers that you talk about there clearly give us a pretty big picture of how many people fall outside of union protection. That's right. 
And that's part of my job as a, uh, a union organizer to make the community aware. Why should I care as someone who shops in one of these stores? Well, I think for two reasons. I think, number one, most importantly, it's a standards issue. It's really a financial issue. Um, when workers are not being paid properly or they're not receiving proper health insurance and such, um, they have to rely on state and community-funded programs should they become ill, many of whom are single moms, others who are because they're being paid so low, are falling below the poverty level in annual wages. So they're having to borrow from state and city-funded programs, which falls upon the taxpayer who's shopping at this store. That's number one. And, and number two, it's really just a moral issue. I think New Yorkers have high values. Um, I know this speaking as a New Yorker. And we want to know that when we're shopping at, a, at a, any market, particularly an upscale market, um, we want to know that those dollars are being shared equally. Do you think that most shoppers are simply unaware of what's going on inside the grocery store when it comes to the workers? Absolutely. Part of what we're doing is trying to spread that awareness. Um, we do have some ongoing campaigns where we're speaking to uh, customers at, at different companies throughout the city, and they are responding in a very positive manner. Can lawmakers do anything about this? Can they step in and force these grocery stores to take action, to provide benefits, to give a better wage? There was some talk in the city council of New York about a rezoning bill. Um, and you'll have to bear with me. I have to jog my memory a little bit. Uh, but it basically said that any uh, grocer larger than 50,000 square feet would have to offer some level of health benefits to its workers and meet a certain level of wage. I believe it was $8 per hour or, or something like that um, above the minimum wage. There was a community benefits agreement, which was reached in the Bronx last year, um, which involved the BJ's Wholesale Club. Um, and part of that benefit was to that those workers would receive um, the $8 wage um, and that that company would agree not to interfere in a union drive should one occur. Is part of the issue here, John, the fact that many of these workers are immigrant workers and perhaps undocumented workers, so it's easier for employers to get away with things? This is a problem. Um, this is not a problem at every particular company involved. However, there are a few. Basically, I guess if we're talking about the um, trending gourmet grocers that are, that are developing in New York City, there's two kinds. There is the more corporate national, and then there are more privately family-owned. And we're finding that the smaller ones, the family-owned ones, it's a more problem with immigrant workers. And yes, this is a problem. Um, these, are, these are exploited workers. There have been studies done by um, organizations like the Brennan Center, which have shown that um, at some of these companies, workers are being paid even less than minimum wage. Um, sometimes working 40, 50 hours a week or more um, and receiving only maybe two to $300 pay in cash for the week. It's interesting, though, because your organization clearly, though, steps in for non-union workers in the food retail industry as well. That's true, and that's part of our job. Our job is to um, uphold the standards of New Yorkers. It's also to, to serve our members, and we serve our members by doing that. Um, as the non-union sector grows, as the stores that pay less and offer less benefits grow, um, that has an impact on our contracts, has an impact on our members, has an impact on our communities. So it's our responsibility to respond to that, and we're happy to do that. I'm curious, John, what you think as a union guy about the self-checkouts that are taking the cashiers away from being behind the register. Uh, we're not fans of self-checkouts, <laughs> but um, clearly we live in an age of technology. Our concern is, obviously, is that it could become a replacement for good jobs, you know, you can take 10 paid cashiers and replace them with one, basically. At least in a situation where there's a union contract, there is some control involved so that the workers can have a say, the customers can have a say. When there's no union contract involved, it's basically 
the employer's will, and that's that. That was John Mallon with United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Race car driver, track star, computer programmer, all jobs that reward speed. Well, a recent competition looked to find New York City's fastest grocery bagger. Next on Cityscape, we drop in on the local finals of D'Agostino's Best Bagger Competition. I want to uh, congratulate the 18 finalists that are lined up over here. My name is Steve D'Agostino. I'm the director of operations for D'Agostino Supermarkets. Today, we are going to pick a winner to go to the state finals, which will be held in our Rye Brook location, and we're going to have a bag off there. Contestants, are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? <laughs> They'll be bagging in paper bags first, and then plastic. And it's, we we got to check the quality of how they bag, if it's bagged properly, so you as a customer don't have broken eggs, or your bread smashed, or whatever. And it's also speed. We've got to see how quick they can go. On your mark, get set. Go. You bag it heavy stuff on the bottom. You build your walls with like cereal boxes and square type things. And then you put your heavy stuff in the middle on the bottom. And then you put your light stuff on top, like your grapes, your lettuce, your eggs. You know, bulky heavy things always go on the bottom of the bag so it doesn't get smashed. And then you make the bag heavy enough to be carried. Nancy Martin from Rybrook. I didn't do well today. I think I could have used a better strategy now that I think about it. I liked what the lady did after me. She had both bags open and then bagged from there where I only had one bag at a time. I think the two bags was the way to go. And the winner is America Evans, a 30-year veteran of the art of grocery bagging. She moves on to the state finals and maybe the national competition in Vegas this winter. Paper or plastic? It's a question that has long dogged grocery shoppers. So what's the right answer? Is there one? I pose that question to Jeff Tittle of New Jersey's Sierra Club. Bring your own paper bag or bring a bag made out of linen or some other thing that uh, you can bring instead. Plastic is really bad. It's not only does it take a lot of natural resources to produce the plastic bags, from mostly from imported oil, but it doesn't break down in the landfill. And so even with some of these newer corn-based plastics, you know, that, could, that they say can take five years because they're in a situation under a pile of garbage and there's no air, they even take, you know, forever to break down. So if you're going to pick a bag, pick, pla- pick paper, but better off, Bring a bag with you. It's funny that you say that because in my local grocery store, actually, there's a sign that tells me to pick plastic. It says mm-hmm. that too many trees get killed when you pick paper. The problem is that a lot of hydrocarbons get done adding to global warming with plastic, and in the landfills, it doesn't break down. Why these mixed messages, though? Why is my grocery store telling me to because choose? Because plastic is much cheaper for them than paper. Yeah, it's much cheaper for them to buy. And then they even say, well, we'll recycle the plastic. They really don't. We did a whole study... In New Jersey, where these supermarkets were supposed to be recycling plastic, and they ended up throwing them in the dumpsters. Has there been enough education? Because really, we are still asking this question, paper or plastic? Yeah, we shouldn't be. We should be saying, you know, paper if you have to, or bring your own, or bring the paper bag back with you and use it again, you know. You can use these things, you know, over and over again. We spend so much time and money in New Jersey in in this country compared to Europe when it comes to both packaging and and how we carry things home from the grocery store. If you go to Europe, you know, not everything is in hermetically sealed plastic. It's actually the vegetables are out and fruits are out in the open. You can actually see them and touch them. And 
you know, people in Europe have been for decades carrying their own bags, you know, and mostly made out of uh, recycled linen. Makes a lot more sense for the environment than, you know, for our pockets. That was Jeff Tittle of New Jersey's Sierra Club. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. This morning's show has a grocery theme. Speaking of which, remember this commercial? For many people, grocery shopping is a necessary evil. But Brianna Clem actually likes it, make that liked it, before she moved to New York City from California. More often than I care to admit, I find myself missing California. Most of the time, I remind myself how much I love the subway and the snow and the silly entertainment offerings that New York City provides. And I buck up a bit and decide to tough it out in the Big Apple for a bit longer. This new optimism lasts until the moment I set foot in a New York City grocery store. Entering a grocery store in Gotham is like foraging for grubs in winter in pre-civilization Russia. If you've ever thought New Yorkers a bit gruff, you need only visit one of our local supermarkets to find out why. Strike that super part. Supermarket may be my go-to word for grocery store, but I cannot, in good faith, continue to refer to the dingy, crowded, unreliable markets in this city with any term containing the word super. In other places in the United States, supermarkets are a sign of American capitalist dominance. I once had a visitor from Japan take at least two rolls of film in a California grocery store because everything was so impressively bountiful. Apple stacked over your head? Aisle one. Three-pound box of Lucky Charms? Those are unspecial in the front of the store. 75 varieties of dried prunes? Right this way, ma'am. While such opulence occasionally left me a bit embarrassed at our country's consumerism, I mostly loved supermarkets. I loved the huge aisles fit for monstrous carts. I loved the oak barrels filled with bulk dry goods. I loved the beautiful organization of row upon row of abundance. I often found myself browsing in my local Safeway amused for hours at their offerings. The grocery store trauma I suffered upon moving to the Big Apple almost killed me. Here in the city, procuring food is a challenge. I'm sure much of this has to do with the general lack of space for grocery stores, though Whole Foods seems to have very little trouble finding big buildings to sell their wares in. In most cases, New York's cramped quarters seem to lead to ingenious efforts to efficiently utilize space. Not so at Key Food where, in addition to cramped aisles, they also lack organization or any attempt at smart stocking. Space seems wasted due to pathetic shelving techniques and a general lack of product knowledge. Why would you keep yeast in the refrigerator section? Why would you stock organic cereals both in the organic section and the regular section? Why would you keep organic milk in a separate refrigerator from regular milk? And why does non-organic Greek yogurt live in the same section, but regular old Dannon is in another refrigerator altogether? Why are tortillas kept in the dairy section? Stocking of goods seems rather haphazard at my local market. And lest you think these problems are key food specific, 
I assure you that things seem no better at the trade fair down the road, nor at the sea town that I used to frequent in Park Slope. Certain basic items can usually be counted on. They seem able to keep on top of ordering bread and eggs and milk. But if you're looking for anything even a bit out of the ordinary, good luck. Additionally, grocery stores in New York do not reliably stock toiletries or mini cleaning products. So if you need a new toothbrush or a bar of soap or some Windex, you're probably stopping at the drugstore on the way home. Here's a list of things I have, at least on occasion, been unable to find at my grocery store. Rapid rise yeast, aborio rice, leeks, toothpaste, self-rising flour, laundry detergent, booze. To further inconvenience shoppers, grocery stores close. You can ride public transportation from midnight until the sun shines, but good luck buying peanut butter after 11 p.m. How is it possible that in my hometown of 4,000, Safeway stays open 24 hours a day for all my shopping needs, but in America's biggest city, I can't buy cake mix at 2 a.m.? I know what you're thinking. Brianna, just use Fresh Direct and shut up already. Well, I love any service that frees up more time to lounge around in my pajamas and watch America's Next Top Model. This plan has a few problems. I will never be organized enough to remember everything I need when creating a Fresh Direct order. I live alone. I rarely need enough groceries to justify Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct does not allow me to decide willy-nilly on a Sunday afternoon that I want to make bread from scratch or that I want some damn cake at 2 a.m. Fresh Direct also does not sell Rapid Rise Yeast. Brianna Clem is a project manager from Queens. She blogs at randomaccessbabble.com. Looks like cake mix is an item we're sure to find in Brianna's grocery list. What's on yours? Our next guest would sure like to know. Bill Kagey collects grocery lists. He finds them crumpled up in shopping carts, parking lots, and on market floors. He also gets strangers to send them to him through his website, grocerylists.org. Many of the lists in Bill's collection are included in his book, Milk, Eggs, Vodka, Grocery Lists Lost and Found. I recently chatted with him about it. Bill Kagey, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. When did you start collecting grocery lists? Gosh, it was probably about 10 years ago. I was leaving a grocery store one day in St. Louis, Missouri, and I found a scrap of paper on the ground, and I picked it up. And it was somebody's list. It was completely mundane, nothing special about it, nothing even interesting probably, except for the fact that it was somebody else's. And I decided that uh, this is a great moment of silly serendipity. I think I'm just going to pick these up every time I see them. A couple years later, 99 or 2000, I put them on the web, and at that point, people started sending them to me. You write in the book that people are very protective of their grocery lists, that they're supposed to be private. Why do you think that's the case? I think that they're writing down things they need of all sorts, whether it's medical or food or you know guilty pleasures or whatever. And I think it's just the nature of making a grocery list. You just think that it's yours and it's not anybody else's. So in any way, do you feel that you're invading someone's privacy? I think to a certain degree that's part of the fun, but it's been discarded, it's been thrown away, it's left out in public, and I'm always careful to make sure that the lists are anonymous. There are a couple of grocery lists in your book that were clearly not anonymous. You've blocked out the names, but there was one that was written on the back of a credit card bill, another that was written on the back of an income tax form. Yeah, you wouldn't believe what people will write their list on. I've got grocery lists on the back of a bank deposit slip, you know, all the account information visible, uh, a California state income tax form, 
court documents, some kind of like municipal financial documents that were used in a court case. It was just so obvious what it was, but somebody had written their grocery list on the back, you know, photographs, all kinds of things. It seems that you appreciate grocery lists that are not on your typical notepad. Yeah, that's interesting. And I like the idea of recycling, too. You don't have to use a perfectly um, new piece of paper. You can use the back of an envelope. I take some pleasure in seeing people actually conserving, I guess. Can you learn anything from someone's grocery list about that person? I think you can, but it's all kind of this strange uh, empathy. You will rarely, rarely know if you're right about your assumptions. You know, imagine the uh, the person who whose list, and I've, this is a real list, it's ibuprofen, Fiberol, Sensodyne, Kid Hair Detangler, and Prozac. So, I mean, there's only one picture that forms in my mind of this person's story. You know, they're constipated with headaches, aching gums, and their kid's hair is knotted, and it's no wonder they're depressed. You actually list that (laughs) in your book under sad grocery lists, but actually it's kind of funny too. Yeah, you can't help but laugh at it. I mean, it's almost comical. You do have different categories for the grocery lists that you have. You have funny lists, you have sad lists, you have unhealthy lists, organized lists. Any favorites that come to mind for you besides the one we just talked about? There's a great one. It's just got all the normal stuff, milk, bread, Coke, eggs, and then it's got a note. And clearly this is a a wife who wrote this list for her husband because the note says, if you buy more rice, I'll punch you because, you know, they've got a cabinet at home. And every time he goes to the store, he probably buys a bag of rice. And now they've got, you know, 15 pounds and they're never going to eat it all. You have one here, pretzels, 40 waters, ice, and chocolate, and you refer to it as the lamest party ever. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, I would think that that was a pretty lame party. It might not have been a party list because that's, you know, that's the story I made up in my head. You know, I've got so many lists and some of them, you know, the ones that are in the book are like the best of the best. They're the weirdest, strangest, funniest, oddest, uh, silliest, saddest uh, of, of the thousands that I do have. You have them from all over the world. Yeah. Once it went online, people started, I'd get, you know, I, they'd email me and say, can I send you some lists? And I'd say, sure. So I, after a few years, I ended up getting a P.O. box just because uh, so many people were emailing me and I figured I ought to have a place that, that people can send stuff. And, you know, now it, I have them from all 50 states and Australia, United Kingdom, Philippines, Singapore, France. I mean, they're they're from all over the place. People just... I don't know. They're strangely attracted to um, participating in something strange, I guess. It's interesting, too, though, to look at them state by state because clearly some states have items that you're not going to find in another state, certain foods that don't cross over. True. I think the coast gets a little fancier. Uh, you don't see, like, you know, lard and oleo on the uh, in California or New York lists, but you do see it in Iowa and, and Missouri. What are the most common items you find on grocery lists? The basics, obviously, milk and bread, but vodka actually was a kind of a front runner that I wasn't expecting, and that kind of led to the title, um, milk, eggs, vodka. You know, grocery list itself is almost a cliche, milk, bread, eggs, and those things definitely do pop up more than uh, everything else. It's amazing how organized some people are with their grocery lists. True. They, I mean, some people get real organized. They might browse each circular in the newspaper and, you know, go to one store for four items and another store for eight items just because they're going to get the best price that way. Or, or they've clipped all the coupons and they're stuffed into an envelope on the back of which is printed the list. So they're, they're extremely efficient and organized. And then there are the people who actually make a list. And I've got one. It only has one item on it. And all it says is groceries. 
What do you make of that? <laughs> Maybe they just aren't even good at remembering to go to the grocery store. So it was almost more like a reminder than a, a list of items. You know, a lot of people also just write food or lunch stuff or dinner. I think that they're just reminding themselves that if they don't go to the store, they're going to get home and they're just going to have, you know, salt and raisins in the cupboard or something. What do you make of the people who just put one item on a list, just like crackers or bread? <laughs> Why make a list if you're just going to have one item on it? Yeah, I do think it's just it's the reminder. Uh, husband or wife or kids call them at work and they only need that one thing. It's not shopping day. It's not that they're uh, all out of food. They just need that one thing to make the meal or um, somebody asked them to bring something to the party. I think it's it's more of the reminder. But it is what's the funny part of it is that these people actually take that list with one item into the store. And then in order for me to find it, typically they've got to get a shopping cart and put a thing in the shopping cart, go out the, 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 the checkout and leave the list in the cart. So they were buying one thing and they couldn't remember what it was and they used a cart to do it. So it's, it, it's all in how you look at it. And I choose to look at it in a funny way like that. What's also kind of sad, Bill, is that many of the grocery lists include misspelled words. It's kind of unfortunate. There is humor there, but it's actually is the most sad thing um, about all of these lists. The misspellings, it can just be so amazing. It makes you scared. What are some of the most common words that are misspelled on grocery lists? Banana is number one, without a doubt. And that was another surprise. I, I, I have got, I've got maybe at least eight different variations on banana. And let's see, potato and tomato, and the plurals of those are, you know... Another pathetic example, mayonnaise. That one's, uh, I'll, I'll give that to everybody. That's kind of a hard one. And the apostrophes are kind of funny too. Eggs with an apostrophe S. You refer to these as the grocer's apostrophe. Yeah, it's because it's in, in the old days when a grocer would put up, you know, what the special was. They'd hand paint a sign or, or mark it up themselves. Um, and it's a term. I mean, it's a, it's a, and I found out about this in doing a little bit of research for the book, but it's an actual documented term, the grocer's apostrophe, when you just add an apostrophe to something that is just a plural. A lot of people do that. And I've got some lists where, you know, there are 15 items on the list and just about everything has an apostrophe. And it's weird. That's so common. I, I don't understand it. There's one very poignant story in your book, and that involves the grocery list of a woman who was killed in 1985. That grocery list meant a lot to her sister. Right. This woman, um, she emailed me on the anniversary of, uh, I think it was the woman's birthday. She said, you know, this is the last grocery list my sister made before she was killed. The sister had found it bunched up in the ashtray of her car, I believe. And um, she just told me this short story about how she didn't want to throw that away, even though it was trash to the sister who had been killed and is trash to everybody else. But to the woman whose sister was killed, it was one of the last things that she had touched or, or had or made or had anything to do with. So it was just another memento, and it suddenly became very important. You've actually come up with recipes from various found grocery lists. Well, that's my wife's favorite part because she came up with the recipes. And what I did is I, th I just thought it'd be fun to have – the book is, it is you know, supposed to be a fun, but I thought it'd be neat to have a useful kind of aspect to it. So I kind of challenged my wife to come up with recipes based on lists. So she went through a pile and found certain ones that seemed interesting or at least had opportunity. She wanted to use the one that was uh, spaghetti, spaghetti sauce, uh, but that one was, seemed like it was too obvious. So she came up with some really good stuff, uh, you know, port cranberry cheesecake. And uh, there's a whole day's worth of meals. There's a breakfast, lunch, dinner, a drink, and dessert. I was going to say, a couple of the desserts in your book look absolutely delicious. Yes. 
The dessert is the, my is my favorite one, but the broiled salmon with jalapeno leek cream is pretty good too. Do you make out your own grocery lists, Bill? I do, um, and my wife makes them too. Um, and but with me, I make sure to always leave mine in the cart uh, at the store because it's it's kind of my meta dream to get my own list sent to me. Is part of this project. I think it'd be funny if somebody found uh, mine and, and returned it to me. You've actually created what some would consider, I guess, what you consider the ideal grocery list, and it's out there on your website. I called it the ultimatist grocery list, um, and it's it's pretty comprehensive, and it may be too comprehensive because it's so un- until you get used to it. But it's very categorized, and it's it's basically you check things off, and you know if you're in the deli, you can be sure that while you're in the deli, you get everything that you want there, or in the dairy section, or whatever, so that the list is grouped so that you don't have milk at the top of the list, and then you walk around the store and get your bread and your rice, and then realize you needed yogurt as well. It's it's all very organized, and it's free to download on groceryLists.org, and it's it's also rep- reproduced in the book. Gosh, I haven't checked lately, but tens of thousands of people have downloaded it. In the book, you talk about the oldest surviving grocery list. Why don't you tell us about that? I mean, this is based on my um, research. It's a document found at a Roman fort called Vindolanda in um, England, and it's about 2,000 years old, and it's basically a shopping list for the army. It's, uh, you know, got, I think, turkey, oil, apples, things like that on it. You have the book, Bill. Do you plan to keep going? Or are you going to continue collecting? Yeah, it's going on. It's kind of an ongoing thing. Um, it's it's like I've got a lot of projects, and this is the one that seems to have the most traction. It's neat how people want to share the stories about grocery lists, which you just wouldn't expect because it's a grocery list, and it's supposed to be boring, and it's it's the cliche um, dull item in our life. But it's you know it's a, it's a pretty big part of, of what we do, and it it does say something about who we are. I think. Bill Kagey, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Milk, Eggs, Vodka, Grocery Lists Lost and Found is out now from How Books. And that brings us to the end of our list for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. You can shop for past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.